Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Brubel. Joining me as always is my producer, Kevin Black, and my co-host, Stephen Gillespie. Stephen, how are you doing tonight, brother? Nathan, I am outstanding. It's only been a couple of days since we last recorded together. I can't get used to this. You know, the, the room is big, the air is clean, the, the lights are bright. I'm excited to be here, man. I, I would hope so because this is this is your time to shine, man. This is your podcast. And what I mean by that for the audience is it's one thing for me to put out a draft deeper podcast where I'm going through the quote unquote draft deeper big board. Now I'm gonna have to label those big boards by name because Steven is my co-host, and it's only right that we come together and we share both of our big boards, right? We have multiple episodes going over big board updates because I don't want to bring in Steven and have to do a composite board with him similar to what we do and no ceilings. I think part of me wanting to have Steven as a co-host on this show is to be able to get more of his opinions and kind of see things with his rankings and, and allow him to explain those things on the podcast feed a little more regularly than him and I just doing our big board comparison podcast. So this is why this episode is geared towards Steven's big board. He's going to run through his one through 60, very similar to how I usually run through my one through 60. And he has a bunch of players picked out, highlighted where we'll, we'll, we'll stop and we'll kind of touch on some guys similar to how I usually do my big board episodes. So the whole entire exercise, one through 60, this is his podcast. He's running the show. I'm here to actually chip in on my own podcast. Can you believe that? You don't have to listen to me just sit here and talk for an hour and a half straight. That's why this is going to be so much more fun today. So, Stephen, the floor is yours, man. I, I, I have your board in front of me through our composite doc. I also have my big board in front of me, so we'll be able to do some nice comparisons here. But the floor is yours, man. Take it away. Well, thank you so much, Nathan. Uh, yeah, and and just like you said, you know, I've I've listened to Draft Deeper for a while, even when I was running my own show, Draft Capital. I would listen to yours because I knew at some point we're going to come together and compare them. So I would listen through, I would take notes, I'd highlight guys that I particularly wanted to ask you questions on. So I feel like I kind of understand what the flow is here on Draft Deeper. So Nathan, we're going to start where everyone else starts on their big boards. Number one, and I have Jabari Smith Jr. Now, I want to drop a question to you, Nathan. I have Jabari Smith Jr. number one, and I because I hate Chet Holmgren, I have him all the way down to number two, right? So it's, <laughs> it's a it's a big disrespectful you know, positioning to put Mr. Chet Holmgren all the way down to number two. Obviously, I'm joking a little bit there. But Nathan, I want to ask you this question. I don't want to see if you think it's fair, or you can call me out. You can think of it. I have Jabari Smith Jr. number one. Not only because I think that he is actually talented enough to be number one, but I have some reservations on Chet Holmgren, and it's really nothing personally that he can do until tournament time starts, right? Like, he plays in the WCC, and I know what everyone's probably already, like, prematurely thinking, like, oh, okay, here comes Steven, and he's just gonna bash the conference as a whole. No, I'm not. I actually like the WCC. There's a couple of really strong schools in there. My thing is, though, is the front court size and talent, right? It's not that collectively that the teams in the WCC aren't good. I just want to see Chet Holmgren post these numbers that kind of correlate with his play in conference against some more predominant front courts. Nathan, do you think that that's a fair way of thinking for me? It's nothing to do with Chet Holmgren and what he's doing. Like he's he can only play who's across from him, right? 
It's just that for me to have him number one, I want to see it up against the Memphises and teams like that of the world. Yeah, I mean, a lot of scouts, I think, would would definitely view that as a fair opinion to have, Stephen. And I know it's certainly something that's been brought up as an argument against Patrick Baldwin, for example, right from the start. I mean, th- this was a storyline that, that I engaged in preseason. I, I sort of called it from the jump that if Patrick Baldwin struggled in some of the, the biggest games that were on their schedule, like Florida and Colorado, and even Rhode Island to an extent, for example, if he struggled in those games, his draft stock, regardless of what he did in some of the other matchups that he had in conference and some of the other weaker non-conference opponents that they played during the beginning of the season, his draft stock would, would plummet and it would take a hit and he wouldn't be viewed as highly of a prospect as in my opinion, I still think he should be viewed as. Now, obviously, in, when we're talking about Chet Holmgren, it, it's one extreme to another, right? So it's not it's not a fair comparison to use to Chet, but in, in a lot of ways, it's similar. Chet does not play in a major conference. He is in a mid-major conference. However, I do like that you highlighted that the WCC, I mean, this is probably the best the WCC has been outside of Gonzaga in, in a number of years. There, there are Absolutely. some legitimate, legitimate teams my counter to your argument, though, would be that I think the reason why you're asking this question or why you would want to look for the answer that correlates with your question and, and how you see it the best is you want to see Chet Holmgren banging down low against some of the big men that you would find in like a power conference. Like if he was on an SEC team and he had to go up against that Auburn front court, if he was in the ACC and he had to go up against that Duke front court, more opponents like that more regularly. I guess if that's where you're coming from, I can agree with you. However, in those WCC games, where did Chet Holmgren find himself playing on the offensive end of the floor? He was solely focused on the perimeter. For some games, he didn't even attempt a two-point field goal. He was so focused on being a, a trailer big and stretching the floor from the perimeter. So I think in that aspect, I, I I don't think your question is necessarily getting the full picture as to who Chet Holmgren is and what makes him so special as a prospect. Just because of the level of competition, I think what he did in those games is the opposite of what I think you're looking for more of that answer to be. Yeah, and it's not just the centers, right, but also the guys that are going to be playing the four as well in some of yep. these schools. It's kind of multi-layered, and I don't want to have Jabari number one, move him number two, and then move him back up to number one if I kind of see the same concerns that some other people have with the Chet Holmgren. So I just kind of parked him at number two. I actually moved him up from three to two because I, I was so impressed by his play, but that's kind of where I'm living living at with Chet Holmgren. No, and, and I agree with you um, that, that that's an absolutely fair move to make. I have Chet 1 and I have Jabari 2, but I think there's there's been enough of a split amongst consensus to where I, I don't think you're necessarily that right or wrong having Jabari number 1 or Chet number 1. I think Chet has ultimately more upside than Jabari does, but Jabari has proven to be a lethal, lethal shot maker. And you do have to throw in the fact that to an extent, Jabari has a safer floor on the offensive end in terms of shot making, right? Like like Chet's idea of offensive output isn't the same as Jabari's idea of offensive output. Chet's going to be 
off the ball a lot more. He's going to be rolling to the basket. He's going to be cutting. He's going to be running the floor, even handling the ball to an extent in, in transition and looking to score inside. Then he's going to be a trailer big. Jabari Smith Jr. is much more of a spot-up sniper and an open catch-and-shoot guy from the perimeter than I think even Chet Holmgren will be at least early on in his career. I think eventually Chet's going to be a great shooter, and he'll he'll get his three-point percentages up near what Jabari Smith will likely be at from the start because he's that talented of a shooter. But Chet doesn't have that sexy offensive game from a mm-hmm. shot-making perspective like Jabari does. But what I will say about Chet is, no, he's not the same type of shot-maker, but at the same time, when you count the number of ways that he can put points up, I can see him being a better scorer than I think people give him credit for. Like there are people out there who don't think he can be like a 20 plus points per game scorer. I actually disagree with that because he he can, he can get to the line. He can finish inside. He's one of the best interior finishes in all of college basketball. And I think at some level that's going to translate to the next level. He's a really, really smart cutter. He's a play finisher. He's a transition guy. And that open catch-and-shoot three is going to be there for him, whether it's at the top of the key or I, I can even see teams playing him at that four spot in the NBA and spacing him out to the corner, something that C.J. Marchesani and I talked about on a previous episode of the podcast. So I, while it, it's not the same, I do think there's a bunch of different ways that Chet can manufacture offense. It's just not always going to be with the ball in his hands like Jabari Smith could eventually get to, which is a point of his development. Steven, I will not throw out. He could get to the point where he further develops his handle and he does get better as an off-the-dribble shooter. I'm, just because of what his handle looks like now, he's still so young. I'm not going to rule that out for his future, which is why I would have him at two, and I'm not going to move Jabari lower than two. And I would agree with your outlook on the way that he could grow into a, a, a dynamic kind of shot creator for himself. And I agree. And, and Nathan, what I really liked about that breakdown is neither one of us harped on the uh, – the, the, the kind of cardinal mark that, that Chet Holmgren has on his profile. You, you know I'm over that, Steven. You've listened to enough episodes of me yep. talking that I'm over it. So <laughs> This is just proof that you can have a conversation without even mentioning the word, and we didn't even do that even though we addressed it. All right, so moving on, Nathan. I have Jaden Ivey number three, and at the beginning of the season, I know that a lot of people probably would have looked at you crazy. But now I think it's a very fair place to put him. A lot of consensus have him in that two to three spot now. And a lot of people are comparing him to John Morant. I don't want to do that because that's not fair to Jaden Ivey. And it's really not fair to John Morant, even when he was coming into the draft. Like Jaden Ivey is not a dynamic playmaker for others yet. He has to grow. That's got to be an area that an NBA team, when they draft him, they have to say, all right, if we want to get if we want you to hit the absolute best version of yourself, you have to create for others. And I think that he possesses the athleticism, the court vision, the the strength, the awareness, the dexterity, and the balance to be able to do that, right? But that's going to have to be a learned skill. And one player that I kind of call back to that had similar concerns is like a Russell Westbrook, right? Like freak athlete, kind of big for the one, not really a ball handler for a one, though, so you got to slide him over to the two. Can he develop into a lead guard? I think Jaden Ivey can have a similar um, skill set path, I'll say. Not necessarily a career path, but a skill set path to that of a Russell Westbrook, who creating for others was a big concern, but through repetition, through low expectations for the team overall, you give him room to grow. That can be 
an area that Jaden Ivey blossoms. But even if not, you can definitely use him as a secondary playmaker and you can use that freak athleticism to the team's advantage. Nathan, what do you think about Ivy being third here? I still have Paolo at three, and I know we're going to get to him in a second. But in terms of talking about Jaden Ivy, I also agree with you that I think he's going to be a point guard at the next level. That was that was one of the questions that Jai over at Jai Scouting actually asked me when he had me on his podcast yesterday about do I think he's going to be more of an off guard or, or an on-ball guard at the next level? I do think he's going to have the ball in his hands more than he's had at Purdue. Um, the, the two things that concern me about Ivy's offensive game, because defensively, I think regardless of, of where or, or what I should say on offense, he's going to be guarding the other team's one. So I, I think at that point, like you kind of take what you're going to get from Ivy's defense, really what you're drafting him is his upside as a lead ball handler. And there's two things that concern me. The first thing is that when he gets those John Moran type of comparisons, you and I are both not comparing him to John Moran, but that's the most common name that's used out there, as you just mentioned. Agreed. He does not not have the same handle as John Moran. He is, I, I won't say careless, with the basketball, he just he, he there's times where he he's just not as as careful and he doesn't have it in as much control when he's very driving. volatile ball handler. Yeah, yeah. When he when he's driving in the traffic, he can absolutely cough up the ball. Like Ja Morant always has that ball on a string, and I think when you mix in how Ja is able to start stop, he's much more aware of what's going on around him. But I think what allows him to be keeping his head up and his eyes and and his head on a swivel at all times when he's manning that offensive point guard position is because he has such a slick handle, right? Like he, he never catches himself looking down or he's never second guessing where he should go with the basketball or, or when he should penetrate or how many defenders are in front of him. He's not concerned about any of that because he has the vision. He has the passing ability, but the thing that ties all those things together is the handle. And I don't think Jay Nivey has that same handle. And I would wholeheartedly agree with you, yeah. The other thing that concerns me is I like that you mentioned Westbrook's name because what's the one thing that has really bugged Westbrook throughout his entire career? And you might say jump shooting. I think a lot of people in this day and age would think I'm just talking about the three-point shot. It's that pull-up jump shot is just not what it has needed to be time and time again throughout his career to take advantage of what it used to be in Oklahoma, right? Like there was a point in Oklahoma city where that mid range pull up was, there there was a point where he was one of the better free throw shooters on Oklahoma city too. And that just completely died out with any, any rest of the semblance of his jump shot. Maybe it's, I, I, I don't really have a good explanation for it, Steven, to be honest, but I've also seen Jane Ivey. Jane Ivey has gotten a lot better this year at making open spot up threes. But when he gets two feet inside the arc and he tries to go to like a pull up, I don't love his mechanics and how he gets himself through a release. And that pull up jump shot, while he's had some examples on film where he's, he's actually hit a few step back threes later on in the year, I don't know if that pull up jump shot is as consistent of a weapon as I would like it to be for a point guard. And the best point guards in the NBA, Steven, have that shot down. Um, or they have a really, really, really consistent floater that they can go to. I don't think Jay Nivey has a bad floater. I just don't know if it's as consistent as it needs to be. And I don't buy the the mid-range pull-up jump shot right now. So those those two things, the handle and, and the mid-range jump shot, I think he does need to get better at 
to solidify himself as like a top three guy in this class. But at the same time, I will rule out his further development in either of those areas either. Um, I think, I think just playing the point guard position, having the ball in his hands a little more is something that he still had to get himself used to even during his time at Purdue and having to, to mix and match with so many different elements of what they do on offense. I think it's going to take him some time to, to find himself in the NBA from a positional standpoint, but I don't hate his vision. I don't hate his creativity. I don't think he's a stupid player on the basketball court. I think he's a very smart player on the court. It's just going to take some time adjusting and it's going to take some skill development. Yep. And, and I agree with you on that front. So Nathan, you touched on Paolo Boncaro. And now one of the things that I've appreciated in my very short time that I've been with no ceiling so far is how often the team gets together and we talk about players. And Paulo Boncaro was probably one of the my favorite group discussions that we had as a team. And we laid out a lot of concerns, most namely Corey, right? Like he he went and saw him live. Had you know, Corey's got an amazing eye for talent. And a lot of the concerns that I had just from watching on the video, it sounded like it correlated a lot with what Corey was able to see live. And what drives me crazy about this, Nathan, is that Paulo came into the season with number one pick aspirations and even some expectations by many. And he came into the season, I don't know if it was poor conditioning or whatever, but in big games, he had the whole cramping issue, right? And everyone kind of chalked that up to nothing. And then there was the whole, well, he doesn't pass or he doesn't defend. And then he started showing flashes of that. And then he just kind of reverted back to him in big clutch moments, becoming just a player that's talented, that's strong, but he loves to settle for mid-range jump shots. And whether or not you you grew up in an era where the mid-range was or was not appreciated, with a player like him, especially in college basketball, I can't for the life of me, one, understand the spacing that he has to deal with consistently on a talented team. And then two, his lack of drive and motivation just to have his armpit in the rim every play there there's players that don't have that type of talent or athleticism that play harder more consistently and Paolo it seems like has everything that a prospect could ever want to have physically and athletically but doesn't play with that same drive Nathan do you agree with that it's it's an interesting question right because he's actually had some moments I think ever since that Virginia game, which was his worst game, in my opinion, on the year, he was 2 of 13 from the field. He only had um, eight points. He finished with five rebounds. He did not I, – I, excuse me, he did have five assists in that game, but he had three turnovers as well. So not a 2 to 1 assist to turnover ratio, and he didn't shoot well from the field. And then you factor in how he's kind of been in a defensive slump. I'd say even longer than that, but he's been in a defensive slump probably since the end of January. Um, And you you try to unpack why that could be. I don't think it's from a lack of love for the game or a lack of of effort. Um, I think the main issue for him offensively is what we've pointed out all all along, which is exactly what we talked about, Stephen, that he falls in love with the mid-range shot, but when he's actually aggressive and he gets downhill and he makes it a point, to go a point of emphasis to go to the basket. He does really well finishing around the basket. He's he's rated as very good on synergy 72nd percentile, even on like floater slash runners. He's in the 94th percentile. Um, He has, he's only taken 14 of them on the year, 
but at the same time, he's made eight of them. So that is technically something he has in his bag that that sort of puzzles me why he doesn't go to something like that more. Um, but, but on the jump shot specifically, he's good off the dribble, but he's not great. He rates out as good on jump shots overall on the most of his volume, but he's only a forty. He's only in the forty-second percentile in terms of spot-up looks. That's average, and a lot of those looks are coming from those open three-point opportunities. Where for whatever reason, he just needs to dribble into his jump shot um, to get the arc on his shot that he needs to ultimately get in the basket. When he's shooting from a standstill, he's either trying so hard that he forces it and it goes off the back of back of the rim or he's doesn't get the right angle on it and he's coming up short on those shots you don't necessarily see a lot of swish makes when he's shooting from a standstill so it's the part where i think that he needs to have the ball in his hands getting downhill more he should not be one of the guys who's always facing the floor for others and then those downhill drives need to end in him getting to the basket not settling for a lot of those mid-range pull-ups so I would agree with you. That's really a lot of where the offensive struggles come in. Defensively, I think I talked about this a little bit on the stream when, when, when I was with Corey and Albert when we did the Selection Sunday stream. I think defensively, it's not that he's not engaged or he doesn't want to try. I think he's just more concerned about making a play on the ball than doing the right thing on defense, right? And you'll kind of see how he tries to guard people. It's, it's not even that he'll try to funnel somebody into Mark Williams down low for, for Williams to get the shot block. He'll sort of try to play an angle to the point where he'll let the guy kind of get a step and it'll open up the opportunity for him to get like a chase down type of block from behind. But he's not quick enough to recover on those attempts to actually make that play more consistently in terms of make it more times when it happens than, than when it doesn't. So he, he doesn't have that ability to, to be able to make that play on a consistent basis. That really hurts him. Guys get by and they get easy looks at the rim, especially when Mark Williams isn't paying attention to rotate over and help out. And that that's kind of what the communication thing, too. And for, for whatever reason, I think Paolo is brilliant in terms of what he can see at times on the offensive end of the floor, but he will lose himself defensively and he won't make the callouts. And like I said, he's not the quickest guy not the most fleet-footed guy to be able to recover when he does get burnt on a bad mistake like that. So it's it's not without effort. I just think he needs to he needs to get coached up in the NBA and he needs to get somebody to to knock a lot of that defensive playmaking mentality out of him and just coach him to just make the right decisions on defense and learn how to communicate with his teammates. And I think once he once he does those two things. I think he'll be a good enough team defender, and he's obviously as big and strong as he is, 6'10", 250 pounds, to defend off the ball. I think a lot of that will take care of itself as well. So I don't see him being a below-average defender in the NBA, kind of like some other people are projecting him to be. But I think that's really been the biggest thing that that stood out to me, other than some of the inefficient scoring, because we, we know the why behind the inefficient scoring, and we know that that's fixable. But I think he really needs to hone in, especially through this tournament run on the defensive end more than anything. That's fair, Nathan. I, I, I like that explanation. So I want to ask you one more question before we move on. And just to kind of remind the listeners, we made it through four guys. We're not going to park on every player. You know, this is the this is where a lot of discussion is going to come in. They'll come draft time. We got to talk about the meat and potatoes, Stephen. Come on. I mean, a- absolutely. Exactly. Right. Yeah. You, we can't just fill up on bread. Right. So 
Is there anything in your opinion, Nathan, and I know that you're going to keep an open mind moving forward, but just for the sake of asking questions, is there anything that Paulo Boncaro can do in this tournament to work his way up to number one conversations again? I think it's it's limiting the amount of spot-up jumpers that he takes. I would like to see him keep the ball moving. I would like to see Duke maybe run a few more inverted pick and rolls with him and Mark Williams than maybe they've been they've been running, or, or even him and, and Theo John when Mark Williams is off the floor. I, w- I would like to see some more of that. And then everything I talked about defensively, Stephen, we need to see that or else it's not just going to be about his draft stock. It's going to be a Duke upset early on in the tournament. Like if, if Paolo's not locked in defensively and making adjustments to some of the things I talked about, you and I, I think would both agree that Michigan state is a team that can beat them. Michigan state has the, the size, the length, the athleticism. And if Max Christie's on um, and, and Walker's on, like they have some of the shooters to, to outgun some of the Duke guys as well. So that is a very dangerous game right there in the second round. If they aren't locked in and, and Paolo's not, kind of helping Mark Williams on the defensive end. Yeah, I think a a short tournament run really hurts any chance that he has to kind of reclaim that number one discussion. All right, so just to recap the top four that we have here, Nathan, uh, number one, Jabari Smith Jr., number two, Chet Holmgren, number three, Jay Nivey, and we just discussed Paolo Boncaro, who I have at number four. I have Jonathan Davis fifth. We'll move past him to the number six player, and I've been saying it for a while, Nathan, I have an opportunity here on the show. We're going to talk about Benedict Matherin, probably the least discussed, most talented player that is within a lot of people's top 10. And what's crazy, Nathan, is that I'm watching a lot of mock drafts and I'm watching a lot of big boards. And now he's even falling outside the top 10. And I can't for the life of me understand that because I think what happens with teams and players like Benedict Matherin for Arizona is that he kind of falls victim to the conference that he's in. Not everybody, especially us, Nathan, right? Like, it's really hard. You have to be a draft sicko to stay up and watch Arizona games. But when I go back and I watch these film, you know, film sessions that I do, and I'm keeping in mind everything that everyone is saying negatively about him, like, well, he can't create for himself. He's not really that great of a defender. You know, he his passing ability isn't really that good. I'll go back and I'll watch these games, Nathan, and I see multiple possessions where he's doing the exact same thing that people are criticizing him for. And I truly honestly believe, and I'm not trying to like insult the draft community or anything like that. I just don't think that people are adequately watching and evaluating Benedict Mather. And I think a lot of people will agree that he's even now I'm starting to see him slip to positions of like 13 you know, I'll, I'll say he's a lottery level talent to almost, you know, 99% of the draft community. But it's like we address that and we don't say anything else about him. Nathan, what are your thoughts on Benedict Matherin? I think the problem, the biggest problem in, in Benedict Matherin's game that, that you sort of alluded to is in the shot creation. But it's not, we have to be very careful how we use the word creation. And it's something that I touched on with, with Rucker on a previous podcast. It's something that all three of us just touched on when we were last together earlier in the week. We have to be very careful with how we look at the word creation. Creation can mean a bunch of different things. It can mean your more traditional off the dribble shot creation, like we're seeing from some of the best shot makers in the NBA, like Jason Tatum, for example. It can also mean, in Keegan Murray's case, for example, just being able to get yourself in the right spots on a consistent basis 
to take the most advantage of your strengths to, to, to finish plays and, and, and put points in the basket. Matherin's struggles are not from the, the, the second definition of creation that I just gave. It is more so in the first one. And really it's, it's in the isolation game. The good news is, is that he's only found himself in 17 possessions that that synergy would classify as isolations, right? So that's the good news. He's, He's not pouring all of his efforts into something that's a weakness of his. He's buying into the coaching system and the schemes and the plays that they're trying to run. And he's making the most out of all of his transition attempts, which is the first most common play type that he's involved in. His spot-up attempts, third most common. And off cuts and off screens, his fourth and fifth most common play type. So I love that about Matherin. Play to your strengths. Take advantage of that burst that you have. And that vertical space that you can bring as a cutter and a lob threat. Take advantage of all of those things. But in those isolation attempts, 13 shots have been taken off of those 17 possessions. And only three of 13 from the floor on those attempts. And I think you see more of that when you start to dissect and you break down his handle. His dribble can be a little loose. He's not as creative with the ball in his hands from a dribbling and a handle perspective. I don't love that area of his game. But at the same time, I'm not going to let that keep him from being outside of my top 10. I think even if we get Shane Sharp in the mix, we have not been ranking him at no ceilings. We don't know what's going to happen, and I'm glad you joined us in those efforts and not ranking yeah. Mr. Sharp quite yet. Even if we do rank him, I think Mathur would probably be my 10th best prospect on the board. And I really don't think he should slip outside of the top 10 because of all the strengths that we could outline, Stephen. He, he may not be an elite defender for his position, but I think he's going to be a good to very good positional defender, that 2-3 that range. I, I would assume he's probably going to play more of the shooting guard than the small forward in the NBA, but even as his body continues to fill out, he may very well hit the three. So I, I think he's going to be just fine defensively. Offensively, you get open three-point shooting. You get cutting to the basket. You get a transition dunker. You get all of the effort and the tenacity and the motor that he plays with. There's such a very, very safe player here. I think more safe than some would want to acknowledge. And if he gets better handling the basketball, developing some combination moves and being better at getting his man off balance and then reliably nailing some of those shots that we talked about, that would kind of give him more of the Andrew Wiggins ceiling that that I can envision for him and the, the type of player comp that, I've also seen for Matherin as well. Sometimes when I watch Matherin, I've, I've brought up that name. Like, can he be an Andrew Wiggins type of complimentary starter? Maybe he's not a star. Like, I think Rucker and I agree. We wouldn't consider Andrew Wiggins a, a, a full-time star, but he's been a really good starter for the Golden State Warriors this year, the player that he's developed into being. Yeah, and an all-star. In, in Matherin's case, Matherin's a much better shooter than Wiggins was coming out of college. So that's another thing that points in his favor. So I think he does have a higher ceiling than someone to give him credit for, but I do see some of the weaknesses. And in my opinion, they are tied to what the consensus has said. I, I do acknowledge what they're bringing to the table. Yeah. And I just think that I, I fall in line of the thought process that he's asked to play a certain way within this, within the system, as you just laid out beautifully, Nathan, but I have seen flashes of creation off the bounce for himself and for others. And I do think that an NBA team that is fortunate enough to land him, I don't think that a coaching, sca- a coaching staff in the NBA 
is going to see that and be like, nah, let's work you in, like, let's just keep you here. There is that chance, Nathan, in my opinion, that he could develop more so into maybe that secondary tertiary playmaker off the dribble because he does have good pick and roll instincts from what I've seen in his game as well. And and a player that I can't stop thinking about, I'm not saying that he's going to ultimately end up being like this guy, but in terms of ceiling, like when Bradley Bill came out of Florida, he was not a guy who could break you down off the bounce. And that was, and sure, that can be an outlier of sorts, but I see a lot of parallels in their game and their development. And I do think that a team, if it's unfortunate enough, as, as Washington was when they lost John Wall, they said, okay, well, our next best player is Bradley Bill. Let's see what the kid can do. Bill started doing things off the bounce that he wasn't necessarily asked to do. And I don't think that, yes, that Benedict Matherin equals Bradley Bill, but maybe in that same opportunity or a less talented team, that that might be asked of him. And we may be looking back and seeing like, oh, okay, yeah, there were signs of it in his college film. He just didn't get that type of opportunity. I, I would agree with everything that you just said, Stephen. And that's why I, I, I'm, not go, I'm not going to poo-poo on your Matherin ranking. I think I would be much more comfortable ranking somebody like A.J. Griffin, for example, who in as limited of possessions in isolation, but still a, good, a better number nonetheless, he rates out in the 85th percentile in terms of isolations. And I know A.J. Griffin's going to be a player that, that you're going to get to next. But I think yeah, well, the, he's number seven. He's right behind Benedict. The level of shot creation I've seen from A.J. Griffin, the type of shots that he can hit off the dribble, off balance, fading away, get like bring, being able to explode at the basket at full speed, bring himself to an immediate stop, turn, face, and rise and fire. Like Those are the type of shots that I can see him being able to make at the next level. And I, I don't have as easy of a time envisioning somebody like Matherin, at, at least not right away, being able to hit some of those types of shots. And then when you just factor in how crazy efficient AJ Griffin has been all year long, I think that's why I would be much more comfortable ranking him in that six range or, or even possibly higher by the time I have my next big board done. Yeah, and I've seen you even kind of debate him in those higher position rankings. And it was a really difficult decision for me to put Benedict over AJ. But, you know, the more I think like a GM... At some point, I know that the injury history is going to come up, and I know that not all of those injuries are connected or, or what have you, but I I do understand that a team might be a little bit cautious when they do get the medical on him, and I have no doubt that AJ is going to grow into a very talented player, but if you look at the high school film to compare to what he plays now, it, it is pretty different. You know, It's not a, a bad difference. It's just that he had to adjust, and maybe he does grow back into being that same level of athlete and maybe it is the Duke system, which we have all openly kind of made comments on that the spacing isn't, isn't that great, especially when Paolo Boncaro doesn't have the ball in his hands. It kind of gets a little congested. Yeah. That, that Duke spacing has, has been atrocious at times, but give AJ Griffin credit, even when it hasn't been the greatest, he has gotten to his spots incredibly well. And he's been really, really, really efficient. I mean, I mean, forty-four. You would believe the best shooter in the draft. Forty-four percent, Stephen, on all spot-up attempts. Forget the. I know some people have wanted to talk on Twitter about his historic three-point shooting numbers in terms of percentage, but just that number alone, forty-four percent 
on all spot up attempts, 125 field goal attempts, 137 total possessions. He's found himself in a spot up situation. He rates in the 93rd percentile. Talk about volume. Even when he's in isolations, I mentioned um, the scoring. He's been involved in, in not 14, but 16 total possessions in isolation when you factor in, including passes. He still rates out in the 86th percentile, 97th percentile on jump shots overall, 78th on runners, 91st finishing around the basket in the half court, 97th on catch and shoot looks, 94th all jump shots off the dribble. What does this man not do on the offensive end of the floor? And it, it's almost like there, there's, there's a little room in his evaluation for he hasn't quite looked as springy as some of the high school film that we can go back and see. He's been through a few injuries. He's, even now, I mean, Stephen, you you used to run an, an NBA podcast, and this is something I'm sure you talked about on an NBA show. Like, the, it takes these guys time to get their legs back under them when they Absolutely. have injuries and they miss a significant amount of time. So it's like, this is how good AJ Griffin's been, and there's a very realistic outcome where he's even better, like like another six months to a year from now. Yeah, I mean. It wasn't that long ago, Nathan, that we were speculating whether or not we would even see A.J. Griffin in the season, and now here he is in top five conversations, right? So just to recap here, I have Benedict Matherin sixth, I have A.J. Griffin seventh, I have Jalen Duran eighth, and I have Keegan Murray ninth. Now, we've we've done a lot of you know conversations on Keegan Murray, even back on the last episode of Jab Deeper. So if you want to get more thoughts and opinions on him, just go back and listen to that. I was about to say, I got, I I got nothing to say, Steven. I I haven't made the key. (laughs) Everything has been said. Right. Yeah. I'm with you, man. So everyone just go back and listen to that previous episode. Uh, Jaden Hardy, number 10. That's kind of a, a hot take. If you're not really at no ceilings, I guess. Uh, Tari Eason, I'm going to park here for a minute. This is a player oh that I God. did discuss in that Steven, previous conversation. Talk about Tari Eason. Oh, why are you going to do it to me, man? We don't have to do it. We don't have to discuss him that long. It's just no, that... I, I, I want you to make your, your very passionate case to, to the draft deeper audience. Again, Tari Eason is on his second team in two seasons. He has been the man on both of those teams when it really wasn't even expected for him to to be. In under 25 minutes a game, he is putting up stat lines comparable to the, the, the top talent in this draft outside of Keegan Murray because he has video game stats. I don't even think I can put up as good as stats on a video game as what Keegan Murray is actually doing in real life, right? But if you prorate what Tori Eason is doing to starter level minutes in college basketball. He's right up there with the best in college ball. He has worked on his shooting in season, has cleaned up his shot mechanics in season. That's huge. He is he is amazing in transition, which is going to be something at his position that he has to do at the next level. He can defend. I'll say two and a half positions. I'm, I'm of the mindset that he can guard some twos threes, fours, maybe some small ball five. It, it really is just matchup dependent. He rebounds well. He passes well when he is afforded the opportunity. He plays on a school that just lost their head coach for a lot of different reasons. So there's in-season volatility there, probably to the extent that we're not even privy to. And the spacing and the ball movement on that team is not that great. So he is putting up ridiculous numbers. He's a great defender, a good team defender and on-ball defender. And it and in my opinion, the film does correlate with the numbers. Now, I do understand some people point out concerns 
which I have agreed with that. But I do believe throughout the season, he has addressed a lot of those concerns. My thing with him, Nathan, is, is that when you put him in an NBA system where he's going to have better teammates, he's going to have better shooting, he's going to have better coaching. I don't see how this guy does not succeed at the next level. And to me, that's a lottery level talent. And I think at his absolute best self, that's a guy that I would take 11th overall in this draft. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe I've overblown some of the finishing things to an extent that I've pointed out previously. There's, I, I, I can't, I'm trying so hard to fight through I, my own I get it, Nathan, I understand. I'm trying so hard, but there's just something about the way that he puts his points on the board that... When, when 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 the going gets tough, he just does not seem to finish through contact as easily as his numbers would indicate. Whether it's a big man, whether it's a forward of similar size and stature to him, even some some smaller wings and guards, he's even struggled with some of the contact at times. Like for a player who's going to live almost exclusively around the rim, unless you really think an NBA team's going to be comfortable with him jacking like three, four, five, three-point attempts per game within his first year or two in the league. I, I I don't envision that being the case, but maybe he goes to the the right team and the right coach who just wants you to take the shot regardless of if they have the confidence level that it's going to go in or not. They just want you to keep doing it to, to match the tempo and match the pace. For a player who's going to live almost exclusively around the rim, that that aspect of his finishing, I just I just can't buy it, which is why I can't see him putting up near the levels of production that he's shown right now in college. I just don't see him being as productive of a player. And if that's the case, given what we think his role is going to be, there are players that I have ranked above him with upsides who I would rather bet on because they're a little more creative upsides than what I envision Tari's being at the next level. But I, I, I don't argue the defensive case. I don't argue the majority of the productivity case. If that's where you're going to build your stance on, I can see why you have him in the lottery and I can even understand why somebody like Chuck has him in the top 10. I just can't get myself there. Yeah, and just to just to let you know how much I'm trying to be unbiased with him and with Keegan Murray, I actually switched them from where I had them earlier in the season. So if that's not speaking to how I'm trying to look at these guys, I don't know what else will. But right below him, Nathan, we have Oshai Baji 12th. And I'm so happy that us as a collective at No Ceilings are showing are showing him love, right? Like there's some obviously it's it's a it's a collective, so there's gonna be guys that have him higher, there's gonna be some that have him lower. But overall, the amount of love that that we're giving him at no ceilings, it just makes me happy. And, you know, dynamic shooter functions well with the ball in his hand. He cuts, he hustles, he plays defense. He he's not afraid to do the dirty work. We've seen him as a role player. We're seeing him as a, a national player of the year level player now. He he's training with Damian Lillard. He's getting all sorts of national recognition now. I'm loving what I'm seeing from Ochai this season. And it's not the only Kansas Jayhawk that's getting loved this year. And he's still producing at at a high level. Nathan, what do you think about my my uh, number twelve placement of Ochai? I think that this late lottery to mid first round range is is safe enough for him. At this point, I'm not projecting Ochai Abaji that high. I think I have him at 19th 
on my board right now. I don't have him in this late lottery range that it seems more and more people are warming up to at our own No Ceilings Collective. It just, again, it comes back to the upside that you have as a one-on-one shot maker. And Ochai Abaji is another guy who he just, he does not have that same level of juice when it comes to hitting those mid-range pull-up shots. And it shows in the numbers. He's been involved in 14 isolation possessions from a scoring perspective himself. He rates out in the 13th percentile. So even when you factor in isolations, including passes, which raises the possession count up a little more, he's only in the 24th percentile. So he can make some good passes out of those situations, but I don't consider him a dynamic passer or a dynamic ball mover either. He's not somebody who I want developing into a pick and roll type of scorer or facilitator. So really at the end of the day, we're talking about a three and D player, quite literally three and D living up to the name, a spot up guy who can defend his own position. And it's how high do you want to take those guys when they are seniors and I haven't seen them develop or, or I don't, I don't see them developing similar levels of creativity than I could argue for some of the guys that, that I would have ranked in front of them. And that's, that's honestly, Steven, that that's really what it comes back to. And that's just the position I've generally taken with the majority of prospects that I evaluate. I think that Ochai Abaji is an NBA player. I think he could be an NBA starter but it's how high do you want to take that player? I, I always believe in hunting for upside, for hunting for stars slash hunting for upside as long as I can. And it, it would take a lot for me to move Ochai Abaji into the lottery at this point. And I get a lot of your concerns, Nathan. And one thing that you pointed to that I want to address real quick is that you you look at him as a 3 and D prospect in every sense of the word, right? Not that kind of like watered down version of a three and D player where it shows on one end and because of his height and quickness or athleticism, we just kind of hope the other end comes around. Like Ojai does both of those at a great level at Kansas. Here's the thing that I think, I think that you'll agree with, but I just want to kind of point out there for the listener is that when you do have a prospect or even an NBA player who you, who you have tabbed as a three and D player, if a team is aggressive enough, especially in playoffs, if he's fortunate enough to get these type of minutes. If an aggressive closeout scares him to where he turns the ball over, it doesn't matter that you're a 3 and D guy. But for Oshai, because we're seeing him make decisions at a at a pretty significant level at Kansas, I trust him to put the ball on the ground for a few dribbles and either find the open guy or to attack the basket, possibly get to the free throw line, and I wouldn't rule out the, the the ability of him to be able to finish with maybe a floater or or a pull up midi at at some level of consistency. Maybe maybe not maybe not top level, Nathan, but every once in a while, if he is to be closed out, like I would not be surprised to see him in the NBA be able to finish a play like that on an every so often basis. So he's quick enough to get to the rim. That I I. I... I do agree with you. To attack a closeout, he can get all the way to the basket. But does he choose to try and get all the way to the basket? And when he doesn't, what are going to be the results that you have to live with? He's 4 of 21 on runners on the year. Again, senior season. So if we would have seen development in that area of his game, we probably would have seen some level of development better than rating out in the 8th percentile. All jump shots off the dribble again when he gets himself caught in the mid-range. He's... 21 of 89 on those jump shots. So he's 23.6% from the field in all jump shots off the dribble. So 
if he's going to be put in those situations, I don't like his chances of being able to convert on those situations at the NBA level if he hasn't been able to do it on a consistent basis through four years at a school in the Big 12 like Kansas. Now, will an NBA team ask him to be put in those positions a lot? No. If you're drafting him to contribute to the role that we know he can be, which is a a, a spot-up, three-point shooting, cutting, which, by the way, that, that is an aspect I didn't even touch on. I, I, we, we didn't touch on at length. He's 27 for 30 finishing on cuts this year. That yep. is an incredible strength of his, especially when you factor in his vertical ability, his vertical spacing aspect. He can get up off the ground, finish lobs when he's cutting baseline. I love it. I love the off-ball player that he is and the off-ball scoring versatility that he brings as Tyler Metcalf broke down for us at no ceilings. It's just that on-ball ceiling for him. You and I can agree to disagree. I just don't see it for him. And, yeah, and and I again, I do understand the concerns, but for the listeners who want to hear a little bit more about Oshag Baji, Nick and, and Metcalf did a great job on NBA Deep Dives breaking down Oshag Baji very recently. So I would suggest to the listeners, after you finish the show, go and check out NBA Deep Dives if you want to hear a little bit more about Oshag Baji. So moving down the list here, Nathan, I have Patrick Baldwin Jr., 13th. I have Jeremy Sohan and his teammate Kendall Brown going 14-15. Dyson Daniels at 16. I know some people might be mad at me. I might be mad at myself. Come talk to me in a little while. Uh, Nikola Jovich at 17. Our guy Ty Ty Washington at 18. I have Max Christie at 19. Caleb Houston at 20. And I want to park here for a second, Nathan, and talk about EJ Liddell at 21, who most recently on our composite mock draft that we did we slotted him to the Minnesota Timberwolves, and Nathan, that got a lot of love. What did you think about that marriage between the team and the player? I think him being in that situation where he's primarily playing 4-3 instead of maybe being asked to play up a position and kind of be like a small ball five, if he's playing next to size and skill like Carl Anthony Towns, I think that's a great fit for him because he is going to be a little bit of a rangy defender. He can help block shots on the weak side. He's actually been a really good shot blocker this year by the numbers. And then offensively, he doesn't always have to live in that post area. He can space the floor. He's done a much better job actually spacing the floor this year at Ohio State. The jump shots really become a weapon of his. He can operate from that that elbow slash nail area that a lot of players are falling in love with in this draft class. I love that about him as well. I think in, in on a team where his offensive responsibility isn't what it is at Ohio State, that would be a great role for him. Like with Minnesota, he has so many talented established scorers around him to the point where he doesn't have to score in volume in the NBA. Cause I guess I'd be nitpicking, but it is a small concern that I have is some of those like fade away turning jump shots or some of those finishes inside that he is able to get down and finish through contact or on the end one. Like some of those baskets even are really, really, really hard. And it wonders me if he can do more of those things on a consistent basis at the NBA level with better defenders and better size in front of him than even what he's facing in the Big Ten. That's why I, I don't believe that he's a volume player, but as a complementary player in this 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 mid to late first round range, I think a place like Minnesota would be a good fit for him. And and I agree. I'm, I'm glad that we that we suggested that fit. And it's been like I mentioned, it's been well received. I like EJ Liddell, especially on a team like a Minnesota. And I think that we could talk about Minnesota because he's he's likely to fall within this range, right? Like anywhere from like a Minnesota 
to where Chicago is kind of projected to be at now. I could see a good fit between either one of those teams because he does have that outside ability that he's grown into this year. The inside finishing is there. The weak side rim protection, I think, is tremendous value that you can add to your team later on in the draft. I I love the fact that your center is not going to be on an island when he's on the floor. And what I'm I'm falling in love with the idea is that if he develops good enough to where a team can trust him, you might be able to see some actions where the four and the five are kind of working off of each other because Liddell has pretty good floor awareness too. And there are several big men in the NBA now, Nathan, that you trust to to have the ball and make an appropriate pass for. I think that Liddell functions well in the NBA, even, even on a probably more successful basis than he is in college in a just in a scaled down role, if that makes sense. Like obviously he's not gonna have the same usage or anything like that. But I think that if you were to put him in a set in college, just one set off the ball, he could probably execute that just as well at the NBA level, depending on the team that he falls to. No, I I think you and I are in are in lockstep agreement about a lot of a lot of what you just pointed out about EJ Liddell. I would agree with you hundred percent. All right, very good. So we'll just go down one more spot and we'll talk just briefly about Ishmael Kamagate because I know that you've spoken about him with Raphael Barlow here on your show. I've spoken with Raphael about him as well. You know, I've seen the work that he's done on him. I've watched games myself. You know, you go back and you watch how Paris Basket played against Asvel and next year potential number one prospect, Victor Wembenyama, struggled mightily against uh, Ishmael Kamagate. And I just think that we need to kind of throw his name in more in considerations with the Mark Williams, Christian Colocos, and Walker Kesslers of the world, Nathan. I would agree with that. And I have done that. And on, on my personal big board, I do have him. I have him as the third best big. Well, I, I guess that we got to throw Duran in there. Like Dur- We, we, we kind of like talk about all the bigs, but we forget to talk about Duran because everybody kind of has him in, in that like top 10 range. Yeah, not named Chet or Duran in in that tier, right? Exactly. So after those two, right, then we get into range where we can start talking about a lot of those bigs, in my opinion, like later on in the first round. Um, I did move Mark Williams up to an extent. I actually moved Mark Williams up to 21 when I got to study a little more of the tape and talk out some of the numbers like I did with Rucker on a previous podcast. I have Walker Kessler at 25. And then I do have a little bit of a gap with Kamagate. I have him at 40 right now. There is room for him to certainly move up the board as we're going to have a lot of players who will have to make decisions on their future. If a considerable amount of players, in my opinion, that I think have the opportunity to go back to school actually do, then Kamagate would be one of those players who could absolutely benefit from a draft stock perspective. I don't have him in the first round, Stephen, only because I just don't know how ready he's going to be to contribute on an NBA floor from day one, whereas I would trust Mark Williams and Walker Kessler to be more timely contributors on the floor from day one, even if, like a Walker Kessler, for example, even if they're not like 28 to 30 minutes a night stars, even bigs off the bench, I would trust them to, to carry out that role more in an effective level from day one than I would Kamagate. But I have talked about Kamagate's upside on previous podcasts before. I acknowledge the face-up game, the improving jump shot. Obviously, he is quite an impressive athlete at his position. 
I acknowledge the upside. I just don't know if the immediate floor is at the same level as some of the other guys. And I think that's exactly a fair, like that is, that is an, that's an appropriate point to bring up Nathan, because it depends on the position that you, that you need to draft and whether or not you can wait for him. I do think that Ishmael might be one of those guys that takes a little bit more time. A lot of big men do at the next level. But I think the upside mixed with the fluidity and the athleticism is a little bit too much for me not to like. And if you look at his finishing ability relative to those three aforementioned guys, I think Mark Williams is the only player that has a higher field goal percentage. Not saying that that's everything, but that's something to take into consideration. And if you want to hear a little bit more about my take on Ishmael Kamagate, I'm going to be having some words coming up on the uh, NoSeilingsNBA.com where we talk about a couple players not to give away too much here. So at number 23, Nathan, I have Malachi Branham 24. I have Marjan Beauchamp and we're going to stop here at 25 Peyton Watson. And I've had him at 31 for the longest time. And he's just been a player that I've struggled with. And I think Nathan, it ultimately comes down to the physical tools. The fact that UCLA is not using him at his most ideal position and role because of what they have, you know, in mind for title aspirations. But I think that if you consider what he can do at his best version of himself, it's going to be really hard for not only myself, maybe some other guys at no ceilings, but definitely NBA front offices, especially these teams with multiple first round picks, not to potentially take a swing on a guy like a Peyton Watson late in the first. And I think if that's the perspective you're taking in terms of ranking him in that late first range, I'm not going to knock it because I would agree with you. If you're trying to if you're trying to find the best mix of your own personal thoughts on this player from what you've watched and observed, along with what you think NBA teams are going to do and some of the intel that you've gathered, if you're trying to mix those two to the best of your ability, similar to like what Chad Ford does, for example, I think a I think there's there's no other outcome but to have somebody like Peyton Watson this in this late first round, early second type of range, unless we would hear um, that he wouldn't declare for the draft. Now, operating away from that, I think a little bit is what I've tried to do over my last few big board updates. I've tried to go with how I'm actually viewing things as a scout. I have Watson a little lower. I have him at 37, but... I can entertain the thought of, of moving him up into that early second range because of some of the improving um, and encouraging signs that we've seen, especially in, in some of those more recent UCLA games. I know Rucker and, and Albert were out at the Pac-12 tournament. They were really excited with some of the things they saw from Peyton Watson in person when they got to see UCLA. So I could talk myself into to moving him up, but the reason why I have him in the range that I do, and I think the reason why you've also struggled with with ranking him as high as as how you just have now over the course of the whole year, is that there just isn't enough to go on to project a, a, a pretty safe floor and, and realm for him to be able to come in and contribute right away to an NBA team. He is going to be a project. You are going to have to build out more parts of his game that I think some people probably would have envisioned before the season. And you have to have the right developmental staff in place. You have to have the proper plan in place to develop a player like him. So you're, you're going to be rolling the dice at the end of the first round. But as you mentioned, if a team's looking to kind of just like stash a player away in the G League, for example, Peyton Watson would be at the top of top of the list in terms of guys you would want to look at. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. And 
And that's ultimately where I landed at this most recent, you know, position at where I have him on my big board is just that at some point the the talent level coming in, we've seen it with guys previously in, in, in draft classes prior, the noise that he made coming in, the fact that he's not in a role that's really catered to suit him as a prospect and the flashes that we do see that we were imagining him being able to do coming in. I think that that's where I've landed kind of a late first round grade on him. And I don't know. I think this is going to be a tough pick for a lot of people, but I have window Moore junior at 26. I have Walker Kessler 27. I have Trevor kills at 28. Gabriela Prochita makes his way up into my first round at 29. I have your guy, Bryce McGowan's at 30. So he's revisiting first round consideration for me again. I have Mark Williams at 31, Kennedy Chandler at 32, Harrison Ingram at 33, Jordan Hall at 34, Christian Brown at 35. I have Justin Lewis at 36, and I have Christian Coloco at 37, Hugo Basson 38, Jan Montero at 39. And I want to stop here just briefly on Terquavion Smith at 40. Now, I know the last viewing that we had of him, Nathan, was not his best outing. And I saw a flood of people on social media point at that outing and say, okay, I don't know whether or not this kid should declare. Obviously, Tess, I think that a lot of people would agree, Nathan, that he has the ability and the skill and maybe even the upward trajectory based on what we've seen from him to go and test. But maybe it would be better off for him to come back to maybe another program. Who knows? But Nathan, what do you think about my ranking at 40? Do you think that that's out to lunch or do you think that that might be like a fair place to put him? I have him even lower than that on, on my board to be honest Steve and I have him at 53 and I I thought I was going to get major major pushback from the community when I released my board not only releasing the podcast but also putting the physical board out on Twitter I thought when people saw Craven Smith there I thought I was going to get major major pushback but I actually didn't get any pushback and maybe some of that is because of the last game that, that we saw him and Steven, that, that, that brutal performance. And it wasn't, it wasn't a brutal performance in the sense of like his draft stock should be killed because I do think that he is a prospect. I think he actually has a chance to be a really good prospect, definitely a first rounder next year if he comes back to school. But in that game specifically, Steven, the thing that gave me the EBGBs is that he looked like he had the EBGBs on the court. He looked like a deer in headlights at the point guard position. he, did not have a semblance in that time of what to do from that position in terms of playmaking for others, getting downhill, penetrating into the lane, being able to finish once he gets there. He's actually been a poor at the rim finisher all year because he's not the biggest guy. He's he's listed at 6'3". He's, he's probably around there, but he's he's definitely under under like 190 pounds in my opinion. He's, he's I think that like, the last weightlifting that I saw from him was around 160. I think that he might be bigger than that, but probably not by much. I probably wouldn't say any higher than like 170. Yeah, that that's probably like 170, 175 is probably about where he's at since he's been in like a, a strength and conditioning program at NC State since he's left high school. Um, but yeah, that that part of his game isn't going to get it done, and he hasn't quite found the touch in my that I think he needs on some of those runners on a consistent basis. Can he make a runner? Yes. Is it a consistent part of his game that I think will translate to the NBA right away? No. 
I know he's a shooter. I know he can pull up from all over the floor. I get that. That's a big appeal to his game. It's a big reason why I like him. But because of his lack of plus positional size, Steven, he's kind of pigeonholed into that point guard position. And unless he's going to be playing next to a bigger initiator, like, I don't know, anyone of like Luka Doncic or LeBron or Josh Giddy or like somebody like that who has plus size handling the basketball to where it's not going to kill them to play Terquavion Smith next to somebody like that. And he can be more of like an off-ball guard, secondary playmaker, spacer, similar to the role that Trey Mann has actually been playing in Oklahoma City and then has, has found his stride a little bit over the last like month, month and a half. But that's asking a lot for him to be put in that kind of position because there, there's only so many of those bigger jumbo-style playmakers who can actually hold on to that mantle in the NBA, right? The majority of teams that he would go to, he would be a point guard for them. And in my opinion, he's just not ready to play the point guard position at the NBA yet. So that, to me, is the biggest thing. Even apart from some of the defensive concerns you could have, some of the at-the-rim finishing that I highlighted, just being composed, mature, and ready to play the point guard position in the league, that's what holds me back the most from ranking him highly right now. And I get that. He's more of a draft and develop guy, in my opinion, too. I worry about what's going to happen to him if he decides to come back and if he decides to play for North Carolina State. I don't know if schematically they're going to do anything else to kind of help him with all of the areas of concern that that we have from him. I do think adding functional strength is going to help him, especially when you look at the efficiency around the basket. It's you You understand... Why the when you look at him, you understand why the efficiency numbers inside the three point line are what they are. Like he does need to add a little bit more functional strength, and that should increase his efficiency. But again, it may come down to shot selection as well. There's a little bit of mystery. There's a little bit of ambiguity as to whether or not those areas do get better. My concern with him, Nathan, is coming back to North Carolina State. Is that going to be the best decision for him to correct those things? You might have a point in terms of the talent around him, right? Like if he's going to further develop as a point card, he kind of needs the right dance partner to be with, and then he needs the right pieces around him to actually make the shots, to make the passing look a little bit better. I would agree with you. I think that that would be a tough call in terms of whether he comes back to NC State. Maybe that's a reason why he propels himself into the NBA. Even if he doesn't get picked in like that mid to late first round range, maybe he just wants to make it into the NBA and get into a better developmental system. Um, if he doesn't want to hit the transfer portal, maybe just maybe he just wants a better paycheck and he, he wants a better place for, for himself to develop. So that could be a thing that pushes him into the NBA. I would just, if he does declare and stay in the draft and your team does take him with a draft pick, just be very, very patient with him. Do not expect immediate return on investment. Yeah, we could see a, a similar kind of like career progression maybe not to the ultimate ceiling as this player that I'm about to name, but then the amount of time that it might take him to see the floor is per, maybe like an Anthony Simons as as what he did in Portland with a Traquavion Smith. So moving forward here with the board, Nathan, I have Alondis Williams at 41, Keon Ellis at 42, and I'm going to bring up these three kind of in a group because that's where I have them, you know, 43, 44, and 45. I have Vince Williams Jr., Jake LaRavia, and Blake Wesley now, Vince Williams Jr. and Jake LaRavia are kind of new additions. And Nathan, personally, what I like to do is when I see guys that are catching my eye and I'm really trying to fall in love with them, I'll put them in the second round 
and I basically will say, all right, now prove it to me. Prove that you were worth the inclusion into the board and then talk me into moving you higher. That's where I'm at with Vince Williams Jr. and Jake LaRavia. I think the case for Vince is he's a kind of a multi-positional defender who is also a capable ball mover and a, and a pretty good three-point shooter. And then kind of the inverse for Jake LaRavia, right? Like he, he profiles as a pretty good shooter. And defensively, if you watch the game that he had against Duke, it amazed me how many possessions in a row that players like Trevor Kills and Paulo Banquero, two players who aren't gun-shy at all, how often they chose not to try to shoot over a Jake LaRavia. And then Blake Wesley, I've been back and forth on him. I'm not in love with the jump shot, Nathan. What do you think about those three being together right there? So you're, you, you, you've proven to be a pretty big Vince, uh, Vince Williams guy. And to be honest, I, I don't blame you. I have watched him a little bit, but I got a, a full clean game in front of me last night in their NIT game, and he was really impressive with what he was able to do in that game. It's the scoring at the rim. It's the, the scoring at the rim and the finishing ability. It's the passing and the ability to not necessarily play make out of one specific play type, but just him being able to make quick decisions on the move, get the ball out of his hand to get it to somebody who can finish a play, the rebounding ability, the defensive effort, being able to switch all over the floor. I do understand why some people do have first-round grades on him. He's a little older player. He, he kind of reminds me – no, he, I won't say reminds me, but I think what people would love to project his role as in the NBA is kind of like a poor man's Herb Jones, right? Somebody who maybe he, he can do a whole bunch of things on the floor offensively, but he's not necessarily the master of one thing, yet he's smart enough to kind of fit in wherever his team needs him on the offensive end, and then you know what you're going to get from him from a defensive perspective, that versatile, switchy, two-through-four guy who can make plays on the ball – I do like him as a prospect. Um, Jake LaRavia, I'm trying to get a better feel on him, Stephen. What, what are the things that you like about? What are the things that you like about Jake LaRavia the most outside of the cutting? Like, do you definitely believe in the plus jump shooting? Do you believe in a lot of the passing creativity? Like, what what are you buying for Jake LaRavia most of the next level? I think LaRavia has great feel. He's a one. It's the feel. Two is the size. And I think one thing that you can kind of feel safe on whenever you look at prospects moving into the NBA is that combination of intelligence and height. Because even if the feel and the ability isn't up to that same level as what it projects to be in college, that height kind of covers a little bit of your sins, so to speak, uh, whenever you are making plays, right? Like Josh Giddy had a lot of concerns about him coming into the draft, but the one thing that we knew was that he was an intelligent passer and the perspective that he has with his height of eye in order to move the ball, that helps him out a lot. And I'm not saying that Jake LaRavia is going to equal Josh Giddy, but what I'm saying is that height kind of helps accentuate the things that he's good at. The three-point shooting and the range at which he pulls up from that shot, I, I buy. I think that that's a real, real gift that he has coming into the NBA. The fact that he is going to be one of these guys that we talked about earlier with Ochai Baji that... If, it, if there's an aggressive closeout, if he gets chased off the line, you trust him to make the right read with a basketball. I think that he's showing that at Wake Forest, or he did show that, right? And then defensively, again, I spoke to the fact that there were a few games that the other team's best scorer, when they were lined up against Jake LaRavia, he gave them fits. And again, it's because of that height. Although he's not necessarily the best athlete, the way that he sees and feels the game, coupled with his frame, I think that that helps him out a lot. 
And again, I have him here in the middle of the second round, Nathan. I'm not saying that he's going to be like a top tier talent, but I do think that at where he does end up getting drafted, if he does, I think that he's going to outperform where he lands because of his intelligence and, and his and his. Yeah, brain. And, and you and I have him in very similar ranges. I actually have him a few spots higher than you do. I have him at 41, but I, I more so wanted to get your thoughts and pick your brain and ask that question because there are people who are pushing him even higher than that and are Absolutely. pushing him ahead of somebody like an Alondez Williams, for example, who I actually like his pro prospects a little more than Jake LaRavia. I think there's more upside there to having somebody like Alondez Williams on your team versus a LaRavia, although LaRavia projects as a pretty safe combo forward type of player. But mm. I, I do see the appeal to somebody like LaRavia. And a, as for Blake Wesley, I, I'm listen, Steven, I can't sell you on Blake Wesley uh, on this podcast. It, Blake Wesley has shown and he's proven that he's probably not ready to play real NBA minutes next year. He still has a lot of developmental work to do as a point guard, as a lead ball handler. He has, he has a lot of room to grow his game, particularly as well in the jump shot. His mechanics do need to be ironed out. But I think the reason why I haven't given up on Blake Wesley as like a late first round type of prospect maybe is very similar to reasoning that you gave for another player earlier and Peyton Watson is that I think an NBA team's going to bet on him late in the first round because his comfort level, his willingness, and his ability to create some of those isolation and, and self-created looks from the mid-range at the basket and to an extent even from three-point range sometimes, those characteristics really jump out at me from a guard. And it's, it's that type of shot making, Stephen, you do not develop. I strongly believe you're either born with it or you're not. And the fact that Blake Wesley has that comfort level and that confidence in himself to go out there and even attempt some of the shots that he does. And, and to, to his credit, he will even hit them and he will hit them in big moments and games. I think that's what makes me want to buy into him as a prospect more than anything. I think his deficiencies that he has in the court on offense, I think are things that can be ironed out and, and taught better over time, as long as he's disciplined and he's willing to study the tape and really sit down and, and work with some people for, for multiple years. And I, I do buy more of the defense than I think some other people. I think he's a pretty locked in and engaged defender. He has quick hands. He has that, that six, five size with length. If he's guarding other ones, I think he has a physical advantage over some others in the NBA. And I think the defensive end could actually be a strong suit for him in his career with some of the other offensive things being able to be ironed out over time, but he's not, He's not this super-duper lottery-level prospect that some, myself included, might have thought he was earlier in the year. He's just not going to be ready to contribute like that in the NBA. And, and if that's why you have him lower, I can understand that. Yeah, and I did have him at the on my last rendition that I had of my big board. I had him 30th overall. And just to give a, a little bit of you know just more discussion on this is that I'm of the mindset that when you get drafted that late, that you're that a team's not looking to necessarily put the ball in your hands, right? Like it, it takes a lot for you to be drafted that late in a team to say, okay, here you go. So that's where my concerns with him are, is that is he going to be able to do enough without the ball in his hands for a team? And that's just really my biggest concern with him, Nathan. But moving forward here, um, I only got one more prospect that I want to discuss with you, but we'll go down the list here all the way to 60. I have Ryan Rollins at 46. Jalen Williams of Santa Clara at 47, Julian Champigny at 48, Iverson Molinar at 49, and then I have J.D. Davison 50, 
Jabari Walker, 51. Young Jung Lee at 52. Jalen Williams of Arkansas at 53. Tevin Brown at 54. Dalen Terry at 55. Alex Fudge at 56. Michael Foster Jr. at 57. At 58, I have Nolan Hickman out of Gonzaga. I have Taryn Armstrong at 59 out of Cal Baptist. And then wrapping it up, Fabian White Jr. at 60. The last guy I want to ask you about, Nathan, is just at 55, Dalen Terry. I think that he can climb. I think that that's very likely that he'll climb. But just for right now, again, with the explanation that I gave earlier, he's in my second round. I got to see a little bit more. And I think now that he has opportunity, we're going to be able to see that. He is, for, for anybody out there who has not taken some time to dive into Dale and Terry a little bit more in terms of what he was able to contribute specifically in conference play in a more limited role, his game isn't going to stand out to you as flashy or sexy, but he makes a lot of really good decisions with the basketball, more good decisions than I initially gave him credit for. He's a smart player. He's a developing jump shooter. And his size and his length for the position that he's likely going to play as more of like a two-guard or a two-one in the NBA is incredibly impressive. He is a legitimate threat to climb into the first round. Do not be surprised if you see me significantly move him up the next time on my board, the, the next time we would come around talking about my big board. Do not be shocked at all. He is a legitimate, legitimate sleeper. I know his name's been talked about on multiple major podcasts, most notably um, Game Theory with Sam Bassini and Matt Penny. They just talked about him. Chad Ford and Raphael Barlow just called him out on an NCAA tournament podcast. They, they, they did that release today, the same day that we're recording this, this uh, March 16th. Do not be shocked if you hear his name called in the first round in June, if everything breaks right for him. And that would be that he has multiple games in the tournament where he's a standout and you hear some really good things about him in pre-draft workouts if he declares and he goes through the process. Steven, I would love to see Terry participate in the NBA draft combine and get some games under his belt, similar to what Josh Primo and Bones Highland did. Maybe he's not playing every single combine game, but get like one or two games under his belt and really let him explore that point guard position more in that setting in front of NBA scouts and executives in Chicago. That's it's probably if I was going to create like a wish list for things that I want to see from now all the way through till June, that would be one of the things. If Dalen Terry's stock and his buzz is really going to keep growing, put him, give him an opportunity to showcase some of those talents on an NBA floor with other projected and, and likely NBA level talents. And then I would I would feel much safer projecting him in the first round, and I I might actually feel pretty good about it this draft. I think he's a first rounder in 2023, but I think in this draft I would feel much better about him. Yeah, I think if he keeps doing what he's doing right now, Nathan, you you see him if he comes back, you'll see him in lottery like easily. I, I think that that's a real thing. He may have that kind of Malachi Branham esque climb where. I didn't have him within my top 100 and then in a big board he's in my he's in my first round. I think that what's really interesting to me Nathan about Dalen Terry is everything that you laid out about how productive he was, how trusted he was in a sophomore season on a on a very strong team that figures to be contending for a title this season. He was asked to do a lot in a in a very dynamic role and he met that and now there's opportunity to present it ahead of him to where we get to see if that productivity rises with the usage. And from the very short sample we've seen, Nathan, 
I made the joke on the last show that he's going to be the number one pick. I obviously don't think that that's going to happen, right? But the fact that the up the the uptick in usage and the productivity matched, that's what teams are going to be looking for when it does come to that combine season, Nathan, is that, okay, the productivity matches matches the usage, the size kit to play one through three, and the decision-making to, to be featured anywhere on the court. Teams are going to fall in love with that. I agree with you. Like, don't be surprised if here on Draft Deeper on the, maybe even the next episode, depending on how this next tournament game goes, we might be talking about him as a, as a, you know, early second, late first, maybe even higher than that uh, draft pick, Nathan. Yeah, and and it's funny you 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 mentioned a lot of that, Stephen. There there are plenty of scouts out there who are able to actually do this for a living, right? There, this is not my full time job. This is not your full time job. Not yet. It's not yet. It, it will be it's one coming. day, but it, it, it's not right now. But. There are people who are in those positions who do not see multiple players breaking out over the course of the year, but that's why we play the games. You could have a list 500 prospects deep before the year started. I think I was somewhere between 200 to 250 prospects deep before the year started. Some of these guys breakouts in terms of, did I think I was going to be paying attention to Dalen Terry at this point in the season? Did I think I was going to be paying as much attention to Johnny Davis as I have been over the course of the year? You can't see some of this coming unless you're truly that connected to the program and you're that connected to all of the coaches, or you just have the ultimate crystal ball in front of you. Like this happens every single year. Guys come from completely out of the blue and they end up in the first round of the NBA draft. It happened with Josh Primo last year. It could happen with somebody like Dalen Terry this year. It could happen to, to Craven Smith. It could happen to Josh Minot. Who the hell knows? But that's why you play the games. That's why you give these kids the opportunity to win and perform at a high level. And that's even why you have all the workouts that you do, all these combines and these, these camps and these test runs that pop up all over the place, like the NBA Draft Combine, obviously, like Portsmouth, all these other exhibitions that we could talk about, the Tampa Bay Pro Combine that, that Matt Babcock and Fran Fischiller are running, like, that's why you give these kids the opportunity because we don't know what's going to happen. But when you put them on the right stage in the right circumstances, all of a sudden things can change. And, and that's, that's just part of life. It's, it's, we're not being bad scouts because we don't see these things coming. It's about recognizing them when they are here and evaluating the talent correctly. Yeah. And the biggest thing for Dale and Terry's case, right? Like it's, we have Josh Minot. We've seen him in a similar role and he is getting second-round buzz from a lot of people, maybe even first-round buzz from some teams. But the the opportunity for Daylon Terry was not there. And then as soon as the opportunity presented itself, he was already, to some people, getting second-round buzz. Now that that opportunity presented itself, now that the production and the, and the usage are correlating still with one another, the sky is the limit for how high this young man can climb. But Nathan, that, that wraps up my top 60, man. That wraps up the the prospects that I wanted to pick your brain on. How you feeling? You feeling good getting that out? Dude, I, I have I had so much pent up energy that I just unleashed. <laughs> I hope that everybody tolerated it. And even if you disagreed, uh, just like Nathan did, like he, we're still co-hosting the show together, and that just shows that you're capable of having a mature conversation with somebody, even if they don't agree with you. I, I hope that it was a uh, as therapeutic for everybody else as it was for me. And, you know, that's why I love doing this with you, Nathan, in particular, is that 
we 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 share our thoughts and opinions and now i gotta go back and watch this stuff and see if i'm if i'm crazy and and that's what makes scouting fun no i i always want to bring different viewpoints to the show steven i think that that you're going to be a great resource for for just that you do bring different things to the table you challenge me to be a better scout a better evaluator a better watcher that's a big reason why i wanted you on this show is that that's the biggest area of growth i've seen from you um, from when you first got into the draft space all the way up till now is that your attention to detail has been incredible and i I can't commend you enough for it you've grown so rapidly and we're only going to continue to grow together on the draft deeper podcast i cannot wait for what we have in store not just this draft cycle but for draft cycles to come also at no ceilings we're going to continue to grow together and, and with the rest of those guys as well but This will wrap up this episode of the podcast. Thank you all again for listening to Draft Deeper. If you aren't subscribed already, please make sure to go subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. Make sure you follow me on Twitter at Draft Deeper. Make sure you follow Steven on Twitter. Steven, what's your Twitter handle? Yeah, that that Twitter handle is at Steven G Hoops. And much love to everybody that decides to follow along. And I promise if you ask me questions, I'll engage with you. And make sure, most importantly, you're subscribed to the No Ceilings Substack. NoCeilingsNBA.com is where you can find all of our written work. We went bonanza crazy this week. We published the new big board. We published the new mock draft. Maxwell Boundboards made his debut over at No Ceilings. Steven's Shout out to Maxwell. His... Yes, sir. He's Steven's going to be making his debut this weekend. I'm also going to have a weekend post out. We're in the midst of like two straight weeks of written content every single day from us at No Ceilings. So there's no better time to subscribe. Go do that. It's free 99, as Corey likes to say. Definitely make sure you're checking out all of our latest content. But with that being said, that, that'll do it. That's a wrap from us. For me and Steven, we thank you for listening again, and we hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week. Much love, everybody. 